Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 39. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking again to Dr. Paul Offit, the director of the Vaccine Education Center and professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is internationally recognized as an expert in the fields of virology and immunology and was a member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. He is a member of the Food and Drug Administration Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, a member of the Institute of Medicine, and co-editor of the Foremost Vaccine Text, Vaccines. For me, though, he is a scientist, a skeptic, a thinker, and an individual deeply passionate about children's health. That is something that I can get behind. Today, we're going to sit down and spend a little more time talking about what's going on in the world of COVID vaccines, specifically what happened with the bivalent vaccine that was launched this fall, imprinting that Dr. Offit predicted would potentially turn out to not work on our favor, i.e. the vaccine being bivalent, that it's trying to do two things, which is increase immunity against the ancestral strain of the virus, the original version, and also increase our ability to fight the newer version, the Omicron. And in this case, it was used against BA.4 and 0.5. He predicted that something was going to go awry there, and it looks like it turns out he was right. He recently wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that we're going to discuss today and discuss his thoughts about vaccinating over time in the future. So let's get to it with Dr. Offit today. As always, if you have a moment and you do enjoy this podcast, please go ahead and rate it on Apple Podcasts. Let's get started. Well, Paul, thanks for coming back on the show. I'm super excited to have you here today. So welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. So on January 11th, you wrote a piece called Perspective in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Bivalent COVID-19 Vaccines, a Cautionary Tale. It's an excellent article and it was also covered by Alice Park in Time Magazine. So walk us through that, because, you know, when we last talked uh, back in August, you had made the prediction that there is a good chance that imprinting was going to occur with the new vaccine, the bivalent vaccine. I know you voted against it. And then subsequently data came out that proved that to really be the reality. So walk us through what happened and where we are now. Sure. So I think I think um, when Omicron came into this country in December of 2021, um, that was an immune evasive strain. So even if you've been vaccinated or naturally infected and developed um, excellent neutralizing antibodies to what you were vaccinated with or infected with, um, this Omicron and the Omicron subvariants really evaded that. So you could still get a mild illness, even if you were vaccinated or naturally infected, because basically neutralizing antibodies are the critical correlate for protection against mild illness. And so the thinking at the time was, all right, why don't we, instead of continuing to give this Wuhan strain, which was certainly gone and unlikely to return, why don't we move more towards a... Um, a vaccine that contains this Omicron or the Omicron variants. And so January, February, Moderna and Pfizer then proceeded to make a bivalent vaccine. Now you could have made an argument at that time, why still include Wuhan one? I mean, um, this virus was gone. And, and if, as you continue to prime and boost and boost with Wuhan one, you're just selecting for that 
particular uh, virus, so that when you then give a novel virus, um, there's still going to be epitopes that are shared or immunologically distinct regions that are shared between these two viruses, and you're you're making it much harder for your immune system to recognize those novel epitopes on this Omicron variant if you keep giving this other virus, Wuhan 1, this so-called imprinting. But nonetheless, right. the decision was made to make it a bivalent vaccine. So, so they, that's what they did. Both Pfizer and Moderna made a bivalent vaccine. They did the studies the right way, which is they looked at, at if you gave this bivalent vaccine containing BA1 um, and then compared that to boosting with a monovalent vaccine containing only the, um, the ancestral strain, did you get a better neutralizing antibody response against this now more novel virus, the Omicron uh, variant BA1? And the answer was not really. Um, as we looked at data at the end of June, June 28th of, of uh, 2022, we found that there was about a 1.5 to 1.75 fold increase in neutralizing antibodies against BA1. So that told you two things. One is that, that you really don't get much of a better neutralizing antibody response. And two, and more importantly, BA1 was gone by the time we reviewed these data. Right. BA1 was gone. So the thing was, all right, well, let's make a BA4, BA5 vaccine because that accounted for 95% of circulating strains at the time. And so then, lesson unlearned, they made the vaccines the same way, meaning still with, with that ancestral strain and then, in this case, BA4, BA5. And so that vaccine then rolled out in September of 2022. Now, within the first couple of months, BA4 was gone. BA5 now makes up less than 5% of circulating strains. So again, you can argue chasing these variants is not a great idea. And more importantly, I do really think with the studies more recently than out of David Ho's lab in Columbia or Dan Brooks' lab in Harvard, where they look to see whether, again, you saw a, a clear evidence of increased neutralizing antibodies against these this novel Omicron variant, BA4, BA5, and the answer was no. So um, uh, we're going to be meeting um, on uh, Thursday. We, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, are going to be meeting on Thursday about whether or not we would recommend um, basically giving only bivalent vaccine, in this case, BA4, BA5, knowing that BA4 is gone and BA5 is pretty much gone, um, right. both the prime and, and uh, boost, that we eliminate basically the monovalent boost. I would argue, and this gets to something you, you mentioned earlier, Forget Wuhan 1. Why don't we move past Wuhan 1, just give the, the monovalent vaccine against what's circulating, knowing that you're still going to get excellent T-cell recognition, which is conserved, knowing that T-cell recognition is, is important for serious uh, protection against serious illness, and knowing that if you give just that strain, you're still getting a boost against Wuhan 1 uh, because of the way that we've been infected and, and uh, vaccinated. So um, that, unfortunately, is not the question we're going to be asked. I wish it was, um, Kevin, right. to the monovalent vaccine, because that would definitely get a yes vote. Well, and that's the big thing, right? Baruch's group even showed that the CD4, CD8 T-cell responses were were excellent. So severe disease is really not the issue. And I keep reading articles. I, I, I saw one the other day. You know, we should be, you know, boosting more often and 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 all this stuff. And and I know you have a very clear opinion on this piece. So who should be getting boosted now in our society based on we know that 99% of us have had either natural infection and or vaccinated both you know, in, in most cases, who should be getting vaccine uh, boosted now? Right. So there was an article by Chen and coworkers out of Harvard in Science Immunology trying to answer the question, what gives you the best immune response, meaning in terms of breadth, in terms of longevity? And basically the answer in short was three doses of an mRNA containing vaccine with that third dose being a given hopefully at least four months later, or or two, two doses of a vaccine and a natural infection. So, right. so if that's true, then, and knowing that people are, are still getting hospitalized and still going to the ICU and still dying. The question is, who are those people? 
who is it that's that's getting hospitalized and and uh, dying dis- despite vaccination? And 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 the answer is three groups: people over people who are elderly. I would argue elderly, elderly meaning those over seventy or seventy-five. People who are have have multiple high-risk medical conditions where even a mild illness could cause them to land in the hospital, or people who are immune compromised. Those are the three groups, and far and away the most common is, is the elderly. So I think it is reasonable, although I'd like to still see data on this, to, to, to boost those people. Although I would argue many people in that group probably don't make a very good immune response. I mean, I just you know boosted my nine, a 94-year-old mother. I think she's probably not making a good immune response. So for those people, please make sure we give them an antiviral in the first few days of illness, because I think that's much more likely to save their lives than that booster dose. So I think focusing on those groups who who are most vulnerable, knowing that this virus is going to continue to circulate for decades, knowing that there's going to be vulnerable groups, find out who those groups are and vaccinate them. But vaccinating everybody every year to me doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't think healthy young people need to keep being boosted against this virus, primarily because um, one is encouraged by these sort of long-lasting T-cell response. I mean, I'm a perfect example. Got three doses of the vaccine. My last dose was November 2021. In May of 2022, um, so six months later, I had a two-day mild illness, what was probably BA2. But I was protected against severe disease, and I suspect I'll be protected against severe disease for a while. Yeah, and I think I had the exact same scenario. I had, I think I had the ancestral strain in March of 2020, was pretty sick. That one knocked me back hard. Then had two doses the following year of the mRNA vaccine. Then the following year had, uh, it was late January, early February, so maybe BA.1, BA.2, to your point, one to two day mild illness, nothing bad, nothing subsequent after, no long scenarios. Now, granted, I do take care of myself. I eat super healthy to make sure my inflammation immune system is low, but I think that's sort of the answer to all this stuff. Why do you, you know, flipping gears, why do you think like if you go to these meetings and you ask them to publish the data on who is getting sick, why are we not seeing this real time? I mean, that's the big kicker. That's the the statistical analysis point where we can now say, here's the folks we have to ride to get them vaccinated. I mean, it just makes no sense. We don't. I agree. That's where the CDC can help us here is really define this population who is vulnerable, who is getting who is getting seriously ill with this this virus. Who are those people? And then not just talk about boosting them, but talking about making sure that they get the antivirals they need. But I just don't think that's healthy young people. I mean, when when parents of, say, a 12 year old or 15 year old say to me, you know, should I should I boost my son? My answer is no. Right. That, that is the recommendation. I mean, the CDC recommended a booster dose, a bivalent booster dose for everybody over 12 on September 1st. They recommended it for everybody over five on October 12th, later recommended for everybody over six months of age. And I just don't see that, nor does the American public. I think the American right. public basically has rejected that. Right. And my population in our private clinic is absolutely 100% rejecting any uh, boosting or virus. I mean, the, the only group that's questionable, and I was going to ask you this question as well, is that's, that that zero to two-year-old group that's just coming out of the womb now, they will be naive. Would you vaccinate them at six months or would you say, you know what, there's likelihood of, of bad outcome is so low? Because initially it looked like it was roughly the same risk as the flu for a bad outcome, maybe a little bit more for that group. What's the knowledge about that now? Right. So, so there's two ways to look at this. One is, is um, I mean, can a child who's less than two years of age, say, get ill enough to go to the hospital? Yes. And we see basically croup and bronchiolitis in, in the right. entire hospital. So if that can be prevented safely, great. Now, what's about to happen on Thursday is the 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 the, the goal of, I think, the FDA <laughs> uh, on Thursday is going to be to to hope that there's a yes vote 
on the question of the so-called harmonized schedule, meaning replace monovalent vaccines with bivalent vaccines, period. So everybody gets a bivalent vaccine, both as a priming series and a booster series. And that also means that's true for, for the less than five-year-old. What are the right. data? I mean, if, if we're going to replace, say, a, a, a Pfizer vaccine that is given as a three microgram dose with a bivalent vaccine, how are we doing that? Are we having one and a half micrograms of ancestral and one and a half micrograms of, of uh, BA4, BA5? And if that's true, what are the data? What are the safety data? What are the immunogenicity data? Because I, I really hope we aren't put in a position where being, we're being asked to do that without data. Um, it's not fair. So, so we'll see what they say. But the other thing I worry about is my sense is that there's that, that the, the monovalent vaccines are not being made anymore and will soon expire. So it almost doesn't matter what we vote. I think that right. that's going to be the only uh, only option. And I really do hope we have data there because if, they, they, if they're giving it as one and a half and one and a half, although that does add up to three from an arithmetic standpoint, that is not biologically the same thing. And so there really does need to at least be immunogenicity and safety data in those groups. I mean, I am in March going to be a grandfather for the first time. So I'm going to be asked that question presumably by my my son and daughter-in-law and i'd like to be able to answer it with data congratulations on that coming for you yeah i you know i think when we when we instituted the annual flu we had a lot of data over years and years and years to really come to that conclusion based on safety need everything and even though you know a lot of folks know some years we miss on the flu vaccine but most people the uptake is great because we know the safety profile is so strong this is a whole nother ball of wax and a whole nother world all right last couple of things Affinity maturation. What are the odds right now that when we're getting natural infection that we are able to mature affinity-wise in the germinal cells of our lymph nodes, wherever they are in our body, in order to keep pace with the SARS-2 mutation scape? I mean, it's like anything we've ever seen, the speed of these mutations. Well, all viruses mutate, this one also, I, but I do think it has not muted, mutated away from protection induced by natural infection or immunization from right. serious illness. You are still protected against serious illness. And that's a little different from flu. I mean, when, right. when we sit down, we, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, sits down in March of every year to pick flu strains, and we're going to do that the first week in March this year also, um, we base it on the strains that are circulating in, in countries that have winters that precede ours, like Australia or South America. And we're usually pretty good about getting the string right. And that's true here too. For this year, we really got exactly right, the H3N2 and the H1N1 strains of influenza that are circulating. But that right. is a strain specific pick. I mean, you better be right, because if you miss, as we have, say in the last 10 years, when we missed on H3N2, a miss is a mile. And you have, if we miss on the strain that comes in, you have pretty much no protection against against that strain. That's not true with this virus because right. I think because of this sort of shared T cell response. So, I mean, if you look at Wuhan 1, the original strain, and compare it to XBB15, there's 80 to 85% con confirmation of those T cell recognition sites, of which there were about 15 on, uh, meaning T helper cell or cytotoxic T cell recognition sites. And that doesn't get enough play. I really do wish we wouldn't only talk about neutralizing antibodies, but we right. would also talk about T cells, which are an important component in protection. So, so trying to stay, as you note, that this virus does keep getting becoming more immune evasive for protection against mild disease. I just think at some level we're going to have to accept that mild disease would, would happen any, and it would happen even if this virus never drifted. I mean, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital Philadelphia that created the strains that became the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatac. So that vaccine came, came out in 2006. 
That virus is another short incubation period mucosal infection like this virus. So you can prevent hospitalization, you can prevent ICU admission, but that virus still circulates in the community despite 95% immunization uptake for a virus that is stable. I mean, right. although it mutates, it doesn't really drift. So stable virus, and it still circulates in the community, still causes mild disease in the community. But, you know, we kept babies out of the hospital, which is the goal here. And I, I just think we're going to have to some level accept that, that you may get a mild illness, you know, three to six months after after your last dose. And you just can't keep boosting to try and prevent mild illness. Yeah, it's whack-a-mole. And I don't think there's ever a chance we're going to get to the point where we can we can do what people really want to do, which is prevent the 100 and 150,000 deaths a year that are going to come. And I, I think to your point, we need to look at the reality that preventing severe illness is the key, right? Because we can't prevent transmission. These vaccines clearly are not going to stop transmission in any way, shape, or form. If you get maybe one to two months at best, you're lucky. So really, we're talking about preventing bad outcomes. And really, truly, the play that I would love to see people spend some more time talking about, why are the groups dying, dying, right? It's lifestyle decisions that you've made over a long period of time in your life, coupled to host genetics that could put you at risk. So let's work on those things too, folks. I mean, it's just a big one. Paul, thank you. Any last thoughts, things you want to send out into the blogosphere? Well, we're doing a lot better. I mean, I, I, you know, think about where we were in 2020. We didn't have vaccines. We didn't have monoclonals. We didn't have antivirals. Now, fast forward, we probably have 98, 99% population immunity. The incidence of hospitalizations and deaths are way down. Um, we have many more things at our disposal to help us here. But I think if you're in a you're in a vulnerable high risk group, you know, be careful. If you're if you're among a group of people indoors and especially in the winter month, you know, wear a mask or don't go and and um, you know try and protect yourself and also recognize some groups just don't make very good immune response. So go be good about antivirals. I think Paxlovid is underused because I think what because it has a lot of drug drug interactions. Doctors will say, well, you can't take it because of this drug. You know, just stop that drug for a few days because it's always a matter risk benefit. And the good news is there was a paper in New England Journal of Medicine recently showing an oral form of remdesivir appeared to be as good as Paxlovid. So if that's true, that makes it a lot easier because that doesn't have remdesivir doesn't have that same high number of drug drug interactions. Beautiful. I think, you know, one other person I follow a lot who does a lot of great speaking or discussing in this space is Monica Gandhi. And I think she would agree with you implicitly. And I think you guys are really at the forefront of getting the data out that makes the most sense instead of the party line that I'm just, I just don't understand. So Paul, appreciate you very much as always. Let's go fly, Eagles fly. Fly, Eagles fly, go birds. <laughs> All right, take care. So let's talk a little bit more about the data as discussed. You know, on October 24th, 2022, David Ho and his colleagues, you know, released a study where they looked at the neutralizing antibodies against the Omicron variants BA.4 and 0.5 after humans received a monovalent, which means the ancestral strain, or a bivalent booster dose. And they found no significant difference in the ability to make these antibodies, the neutralizing form of the antibody, uh, against the SARS-2 variants, including what was tested was BA.4 and 0.5. You know, and then when another group led by Dan Baruch, that Dr. Offit was talking about, and his group released study on a similar findings a day later, I think it was, they also found that the effect of the vaccine against neutralizing antibodies and the volume of them in the blood that was able to then therefore prevent what we would consider mild to moderate disease 
They were comparable with no significant difference between the original and the bivalent booster based on, you know, what we, we were looking for. They also noted the appreciable benefit of having the CD4 and CD8 positive T cells uh, having a response that was similar between groups. And that is the important data because the T cells are what are necessary to prevent severe disease. And that is frankly what we care about. Are you going to die from this illness? Are you going to get so sick that you end up in the hospital and then have all kinds of downstream risks of long COVID, autoimmunity, you know, whatever you would suffer from? So it was very clear Soon after Dr. Offit and I had our first conversation back in August of 2022, that his thought process around imprinting was correct, that this would be a situation that we would see. So what is imprinting again? Imprinting is basically a fundamental immunologic phenomenon that occurs when the immune system decides to lock on to the RNA or DNA structure of a virus, the first time it ever sees it, it develops antibodies and B and T cell specific actions against protein structure of those pathogens. Once it locks onto that, it tends to stay pretty locked onto that. And then the imprinting is if you then give a strain of the same virus later on that is slightly different, the immune system will stay locked onto the first strain and not develop a significant amount of antibody response against the second version. So in this case, the ancestral strain is the locked on strain, and then the Omicron strain was the future strain that was then seen by the second vaccine. But the immune system said, eh, that's not really worrisome because most of it, as Dr. Offit said, over 85% is similar to the first version. So it says, I got you. It's the same as the first version. It's not going to kill me. So I'm not really worried about it. That's really important because that's what's happening with this new bivalent vaccine. Whereas on the flip side, the affinity maturation discussion we had, which is when you see a virus, it goes through the immune system via these things called lymph nodes. And in the lymph nodes, it's like rings of a tree. As it goes into the center through each ring, the immune system says, hey, I'm going to slightly mutate your antibody structure template to look a little different to try and mimic what a virus might do as it's mutating. And this is called affinity maturation. Therefore, if you run into a slightly different variant, then you have the ability to respond in a way that you don't even get sick. However, as we're seeing with this current virus, it's mutating relatively rapidly in a way that is allowing it to evade this process. And we are getting sick. Now, again, we're getting sick as a population mildly at most. The folks that are getting sick at a higher level, as Dr. Robert said, we don't know exactly who they are because the CDC won't give us the data, but we're pretty sure it's people who are super struggling with diseases, the major ones being diet-related, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, and kidney disease and diabetes. And then there's another group of immunocompromised. And then there is the super old that are just immunologically frail. All of those individuals are at higher risk for a bad outcome. And some of them can make massive lifestyle decisions right now today to lower their risk over time, including changing diet, exercising daily, reducing stress, sleeping adequately, avoiding toxins like alcohol and cigarettes, and taking your medicines as prescribed to keep your system as 
in check as possible. It is impossible for us to state that we are going to control this virus moving forward. No way is it going to happen. China tried it. China has failed. Now they're letting it run rampant. Unfortunately, now it's way more infectious than it was in the ancestral strain. So they're having a much harder time. But that being said, our job, our responsibility now is to try and do the best we can with the data that we have as per Dr. Offit has stated. I spoke to a good friend of mine, Dr. Danny Benjamin, who was a podcast invitee in the past. He's a professor of infectious disease at Duke University. And when I discussed with him, you know, a couple of questions, I asked him, you know, Danny, do you have any thoughts to share regarding vaccines for kids annually, school changes like circulate air and masks? And he stated, I would not spend money on air circulation at school just for COVID. If you want to upgrade air circulation for general health or other reasons, that's different. I agree with him. I think increasing air circulation in schools to enhance the quality of the air has a lot of downstream effects. If you look at the work of the pollution detectives and my friend, Dr. Uh, Fran Koster, we see that grade levels go up when kids have better air with less carbon monoxide in there. Oh, and by the way, it does decrease respiratory pathogens. I think it's a good idea, but not just for COVID. I also asked him and he said, I would not mask just for COVID. If you don't have enough staff to keep doors open, that's different. Masks work for respiratory infections. Okay, it's very clear we're not going back to masking. I can tell you in my sick clinic, I do mask now. I never used to, but I do now. And lo and behold, I am getting sick less often with the typical colds, the respiratory based snotty nose, you know, colds. So there's something to be said about that. But masking across the board societally don't make much sense, doesn't make much sense to me either. And then I asked him about, the, again, the vaccine annually. He said, I would contrast one, how long have we had flu vaccine before we, A, started to suggest annual in healthcare, B, started in to require annual in healthcare, C, started to sec- suggest annual in children, versus how long between licensure of COVID vaccine and A, B, and C items above. Remember the policies when we were training. Flu vaccine had been around a long time then. And I can't agree more with Dr. Benjamin as well as Dr. Offit. It is very clear now that we are in a world, in a space where we have population-based immunity that is excellent against death, right? And that's the key. We cannot prevent all of these infections, but we can prevent death. The R0 or the, the uh, reproductive rate of COVID right now is on the level of uh, measles or higher, which is very high. One person infects 12 to 14. That... 14 people infect 14 more, which infect 14 more, and it's exponential. You're at 20 plus thousand and four motions. It's a big deal. So the take-home point here for me, and after hearing the excellent words of Dr. Offit is, vaccinate if you are at risk. Otherwise, take care of yourself. Eat well. Whole foods. Limit your processed junk food. Limit sugar for sure, especially added sugar as beverages, as foods like, you know, classic one is yogurt loaded with sugar, right? Go to the sugar-free style yogurts or sugar-limited yogurts, right? These are the ones that people don't even think about. Limit your consumption of, of, of flour-based foods, right? So you think about breads and pastas and things like that. All of these foods drive systemic inflammation 
via the overconsumption of them. If you eat moderate volumes like they do in Europe, you're going to be fine. But we don't tend to do that. The amount of pizza we eat, the amount of pasta we eat, is way more than the human body can utilize now based on our motion. Right? If we're working all day long in a field, walking everywhere, you could probably burn through that pasta with no problem and not suffer consequences. But in our modern day and age where we're sitting a lot, you are at risk for significant consequences. So make those determinations now. Change your diet to be mostly vegetables and fruits, 80% of your plate, and then spike it with 20% high quality meat proteins from high quality animals and beans and legumes and fish. I mean, this is the way it should be. Then exercise more often. Walk everywhere. Take the stairs instead of the elevator. Walk, park a little bit farther away from the entrance to the store. Walk a little bit, right? Stay minimally stressed. Learn to meditate. Pray more. Really spend time outdoors in nature, walking around. There are some simple things you can do to reduce your risk of dropping dead. That's just the way it is, folks. So, you know, for me, I think it's very clear. Our job as a society is to give the best data that exists in society right now for people to make determinations and decisions that are in their best interest of their health. Not draconian, not telling you what to do, not forcing you to do anything, but giving you the data so you can make the best decisions. And that, for me, is what we should be doing. And that, for me, is what's happening when you talk to guys like Dr. Offit or listen to the folks like Monica Gandhi, right? This is our reality. Take care of yourself, take care of your children, Hug them, love them, and do everything you can to live in this world for as long as you can with a health span that is indicative of living well. So with that, I'll leave you. Again, as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day, y'all.